Hi, everyone. It's Jivana. I just want to come on for a moment and thank our sponsor, Offering Tree. They're an all-in-one, easy-to-use, community-backed business that saves you time, energy, and money as a yoga teacher. Offering Tree allows you to create a website in less than 30 minutes. Plus, you get a discount through Accessible Yoga. Just go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to get your discount today. Okay, here's our episode. Hello, and welcome to the Love of Yoga podcast, presented by the Accessible Yoga Association. I'm your host, Anjali Rao. The Love of Yoga podcast connects to the expansiveness of the teachings of yoga through provocative conversations with yoga scholars, change makers, and thought leaders. Our intention is to provide avenues of access for yoga practitioners who are seeking to embody these teachings for personal and social transformation. I'm Anjali Rao, your host for this episode, and I'm truly excited to have with us here, our guest for this conversation, Tenmori Soundarajan, Dalit American artist, community organizer, co-founder, and executive director of Equality Labs, the largest Dalit civil rights organization working to empower caste oppressed people in the US. Her work has been recognized by many global and national organizations, including the US Congress, Smithsonian, and she's written a brilliant book with a foreword by Tarana Burke and an afterword by Dr. Cornell West, who has described her and rightfully so as a love warrior. Welcome to the podcast, Tenmori. It is such a such a honor to have you here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here and Jay Beam and Jay Sabitri, everyone. Absolutely. Uh, your book, Tanmori, uh, is, you know, The Trauma of Caste is one of the most compelling, poignant and powerful books I've read. Your voice is clear and courageous in naming harm and violence while simultaneously being loving and inviting us to tackle the wounds of oppression together. It is challenging to read at times because you share with such a bold vulnerability about your trauma and generational wounds inflicted by those in power. And this book integrates masterfully, if I may add, historical narratives, personal accounts with broad master, tro master strokes that tie together liberatory movements, a bigger vision that you paint of a future for all of humanity. It's a must read for not just South Asians or the diaspora, but for anyone who wants to be a part of change, collective healing and transformation. So much respect and gratitude for you. And uh, again, a very warm welcome to this uh, podcast. Could you share your behind the scenes of conceptualizing and manifesting this book? Because this book is going to be, I think, one of the classics. Oh, well, you know, I think I wrote the book that I wanted when I was a young person growing up to help me understand the complexity and confusion of what it is when you grow up South Asian and you encounter caste, you know, both for the caste privilege and for the caste oppressed. It is this very, very uh, difficult taboo. 
Mm-hmm. And when we speak about it, tremendous violence occurs, you know, yeah. and um, and I watched my my family be very traumatized by their experiences of caste. And, you know, the the robbing of language and the robbing of validation that such tremendous harm is occurring. Um, it's it's like a punishment that no one should have to endure. Mm. And so I felt that if I could write a book that was holistic enough and written in a language of healing that could allow people to slow down enough mm. to understand the tremendous um violence that we have endured in the name of caste, Mm -hmm. I thought that we might be able to work together as a community that is beloved and wanting a different future than one of genocide and atrocity, that we might be able to pivot. Mm. Pivot from our cycles of intergenerational trauma and harm and find a new pathway forward of integration. So Mm -hmm. this book for me was about my own healing and coming into embodiment for myself around my experience about caste. And through that process, really also opening a pathway for others to self-examine how they connect to caste and caste apartheid and to open up doorways of opening and um, integration that are Mm. not possible uh, when there is such bigotry and denial and fragility that Mm -hmm. comes from the caste privilege preventing this conversation. So the audience of this book is certainly South Asians, caste privilege and the caste oppressed, but also anyone that is concerned with revolution and liberation, who is a practitioner of a dharmic tradition, you know, um, and who is concerned about, you know, a system of exclusion that impacts over 1.9 billion people in the world. I mean, that means one in four people in the world live in a culture and a society shaped by caste. Mm -hmm. So this is something that is in the world and it's impacting many institutions that many people don't even know about because our our framework around race really keeps us to a North American definition of systems of exclusion. Mm. My hope was this book could basically present the caste soul wound Mm. and lift it up for us to not only know that it exists, but to begin to tend to it and Mm. to heal from it. I would love for you to delve into caste apartheid for folks who are, this term is very new. And though I talk about it in my yoga spaces, I know it's very new for a lot of North North American, specifically yoga practitioners. Um, they're only now beginning to know about caste. So would you mind just giving us like a, a brief thumbnail sure. version of yours? Yeah. So caste is a system of exclusion that has its roots in scripture um, in South Asia around 2000 BC. And in in this system, it's analogous to race, but not the same as race. Mm -hmm. But one of the ways that it's similar to race is that it's set up on a social fiction, Mm -hmm. you know, where, you know, people at the top who in this case were Brahmins, 
wrote scriptures that basically placed them as the most pure and their professions being the most pure and then divided up society um, into descending classes and professions with less purity and less access. Mm -hmm. So in this caste pyramid, you have Brahmins who are at the top. You have um, Kshatriyas who are the rulers. You have Vaishyas who are the merchants and then peasants who are the Shudras. And outside of this whole system were people who were seen as so polluting and so uh, disgusting for what they did for crimes in a past life that they were sentenced to be untouchable in this life. Mm -hmm. Untouchable because to touch them was to risk spiritual pollution and so that prohibition basically meant that those communities were shunned to the worst jobs, to the worst side of town. And so a caste apartheid exists, you know, where people have, you know, your caste determines the whole of your life, who you marry, what job you'll have, what access to power and resources. And it's and it's a literal geographic line in many communities where, you know, caste oppressed and caste privileged people go to different churches, different um, places of worship, um, work different jobs, and and ultimately have different outcomes related to structural violence and impunity. Mm -hmm. And my community is from those formerly untouchable communities, and we call ourselves Dalit or caste oppressed. And I think that grappling with that experience has been like my life journey. Because, again, being here in the United States, there's no reason that cash should exist, right? We right. are not in the South Asian subcontinent. Dominant caste people are not in power. And yet, as someone who grew up in East L.A. and grew up um, in many different South Asian contexts here, I saw caste replicated everywhere. Mm. I was discriminated against. I faced slurs and death threats. I had like even plates changed on me because someone didn't want me to eat on their and use their silverware and plates. And when you see that, it's it's a form of repetition that comes from structural trauma. You know, mm. people are mindlessly recreating the things that they know back at home, even if it's unjust, even if it's unnecessary. It's because it's what's familiar. Yeah. And I think when I saw that, it was really critical for me to not only break the silence about caste, but also push conversations around caste to not just include the political and economic dimensions of caste exploitation, which are many, um, but also for us to look at the ways that we carry intergenerational trauma as a result of caste mm. and and really you know commit to having our community address this grave system of discrimination and and tend to the the pain that results to it and heal so that we don't pass it on to the next generation mm. thank you thank you for sharing that and in that you also mentioned in your book that, you know, your parents, once they moved to the United States, they thought that they've left caste behind and only to find it, like you said, being with with a desperate optimism uh, that that there will be no more caste here in the United States, only to find that it was there. And you, in 2015, did a caste survey, you know, and you talk about that in the book and you faced a lot of hurdles and resistance. Has that shifted since then to now? 
Well, I think especially for listeners that are um, based in North America, yeah. I think one people one thing that people have to realize is that despite caste being so prevalent in South Asia and there being significant groups of caste oppressed people here in North America, there was an absolute structural attempt to gaslight and intimidate mm-hmm. caste oppressed people from speaking out about caste. Yeah, yeah. And this was my experience growing up. I was constantly told and belittled for raising this issue, even though there was tons of headlines happening every day in South Asia, dominant caste networks wanted to shut this conversation down. And they worked to try to erase even the word Dalit and stop the teaching of caste from occurring in American textbooks. That's how deeply they didn't want um, caste to be known. However, I think that, you know, we were, you know, relentless in the pursuit of our freedom. And I think one of the things that, you know, um, the myself and different leaders in Equality Labs did was we knew that given the scope and the scale of the problem that we needed to begin to create the first data set to talk about how big CAST was. And so myself and, um, you know, my colleague, Dr. Mari Zwick-Maitri, we conducted the first survey to document caste in North America. And um, and even conducting the survey led to caste harm. You know, people threw slurs at us. They would, when we would table, they would insult us and say that we were separating the community. Even one organization even called us desperate because they they were they went into existential crisis about conducting this survey. And they said, if we do this survey, we can actually, we're dividing our community, so we can't do this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they asked us to speak to their board mm-hmm. as a way to calm their fears. And we said, look, you know, your community, the community is already divided. The survey is not a tool of division. It's just revealing what has always been there. And if you want exactly. to make your organization more inclusive, you have to do these measures because it's the only way that we set a bar for how significant these problems are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, through some you know, way by hook or by crook, we got this survey done and it established a very stark set of data for how bad caste is in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. one in four people face some form of physical or verbal assault, one in three Uh, discrimination in educational settings, and two out of three experienced workplace discrimination. Mm -hmm. And and this was really borne out by several high-profile cases where the state of California has sued Cisco Corporation for caste discrimination in its workplace. And um, currently, right now, there's five religious um, temples under the BAPS sect that is being sued by its workers who were trafficked for, you know, being paid, you know, alleged by those workers for over being paid $1 an hour. Ridiculous. Yeah. And called worm, their passports were held, you know, it's just, it's, it's just criminal conditions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think this is a big reason why caste oppressed people have been very clear about saying that caste is a worker's rights 
It's a, a human rights issue. Human rights. Yeah. And also it's a women's and survivors' rights issue. Yeah. And uh and we have set, you know really flanked and have been flanked by other civil rights movements because um some of the most egregious worker violations and racial inequities we're seeing happen to South Asian workers who are from caste oppressed backgrounds. Mm. So it's our hope that we can really use this pain and turn it into power, mm. but also lead in a different way about what it takes to de-escalate from the point of violence and bigotry. Because, you know, the, the bigots who are South Asian, who have been continuous in blocking um, caste equity, um, they've had centuries to train their nervous system into feeling that equity mm is a survival level threat for their systems. Mm. So there's a lot of de-escalation and mindfulness practice that these people really need to engage in so that they, they we don't let their bigotry stop the flow of civil rights. I love that. I want to just address that that word and the, the way you have used uh, and emphasized embodiment practices throughout the book. Uh, you've structured the book around the four noble, noble truths. Is that how you uh, wanted to kind of practice de-escalation? Can you share why you structured this book the way you did? Was that a part of the de-escalation? I mean, for me, I... I feel like one part of the way caste works is that it's animating ideology, Brahmanism. Yeah. Uh, it's it's one of its control logics is that of the removal removal of consent. Mm. You know, because there is so much carceral judgment around the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things. You know, this is who you can love. This is who you can marry. This is what you do. Um, and if you break that line, you're not just breaking society, you're breaking the cosmic order, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that to, to really begin to heal ourselves from caste, we have to return consent mm. in all domains. <clears throat> so I think for us, you, it's just a very powerful thing for us to say, um, you know, I, I never want to be prescriptive about what my path is. So yeah. I chose to be Buddhist, but I'm not saying everyone that's anti-caste should be a Buddhist. But for me, Buddhism made a lot of sense because one, you know, I say in my book, I have a whole section on lineage. I say yeah. that I'm a Buddhist like Alice Walker and <laughs> Tina Turner, you know, where for me, my, my Buddhism was so driven by my survivorship. Yeah. And and I found humanness in the ways that they used Buddhism and Buddhist tactics to basically attenuate the signal of violence mm. and have self-awareness inside your nervous system to de-escalate it from a point of survival. Yeah. Um, and also the beauty in the way that they approach loving kindness as part of a revolutionary practice. Mm. Those were the things that made me feel comfortable in being um Buddhist. And, uh, and then I think the other thing that really moved me as a, uh, to be Buddhist was that, you know, Buddhism started as, um, as a movement um, in resistance to Brahmanism. Mm. 
Right. And the first socially engaged Buddhists were actually caste depressed Buddhists. Right. So that lineage is actually my birthright. Mm-hmm. And these historical caste uh, oppressed Buddhists, whether it was Ayodhidas from Tamil Nadu or Dr. Ambedkar from Maharashtra, these are beautiful, beautiful Buddhist thinkers that mm-hmm. opened up different pathways for my people. And so I felt really at home uh, in practicing a secular form of Buddhism that was really just linked to my own integration of my mind and my body and my spirit. And so to me, the Four Noble Truths as a structure in this book were very much applied to that early understanding in Buddhism that, you know, suffering exists. And the Mm -hmm. suffering that they were speaking about wasn't just magical and ethereal and existential. It was about the blood and tears and flesh that was warped and controlled under Brahmanism. Right. So it's that structure that really kind of helped, I think, open up deep possibility there, you know? Mm. Could you please uh, define what Brahmanism is for our listeners? What is that ideology that, you know, sort of infuses this whole hierarchical system, this false hierarchy? So Brahmanism is the animating ideology that is what founded um, the caste system, you know. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it was Brahmin priests who wrote the scriptures that ultimately set up the logics of caste. So -hmm. when we say Brahmanism, it's akin to us understanding that we would never talk about anti-Blackness without talking about white supremacy, Mm -hmm. right? So again, you know, so if we don't talk about anti-Blackness without talking about white supremacy, so too, when we talk about caste, we have to talk about Brahminism. And you would use this term Brahminical to speak about when things are seeped in that ideology. So for example, when we're talking about gender-based violence, we're talking about the root systems there, we don't say patriarchy, we say Brahminical patriarchy, because we're rooting back to that intersectional understanding. Well, what gave rise to patriarchy? Well, caste did. So therefore it's Brahminical patriarchy. Hi everyone. I just wanted to pop in here really quick and remind you about our sponsor, Offering Tree. As yoga teachers, we are our own business managers, our website designers, our own producers. We do it all, and Offering Tree offers an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to succeed while we're doing all the things. And I just like to say that through the partnership with the Love of Yoga podcast, Offering Tree has shown that it's committed to supporting accessibility and equity in the yoga world. In fact, Offering Tree is a public benefit corporation, and they're driven by a mission of wellness accessibility, which we share with them at Accessible Yoga. Um, as an Offering Tree user, you'll join a supportive educational community of wellness entrepreneurs, and you'll also get free webinars with top experts in wellness and entrepreneurship. Remember, go to offeringtree.com backslash accessible yoga to learn more and to get your discount. Okay, back to our episode. Yes, thank you. And that is a perfect sort of a transition point into yoga because uh, yoga originated from indigenous belief systems and somatic practices, but then they were codified and systemized by and taught by Brahmins. Um, So what we study and practice today come from many sources and most are from Brahminical lineages. 
um, how would you suggest we and is there even a possibility for us to practice yoga as allies of caste abolition movement? Can we is there a way for us to do this in solidarity with integrity? I think that one thing that is so important here is that, you know, we already in North American practice in yoga incorporate many secular practices that ground us and connect us to the communities that we're in relationship with. So I know in many yoga communities, people open with a land acknowledgement, mm -hmm. you know, naming the indigenous, unceded, indigenous um, lands that they are operating from. They also may make an acknowledgement to the racial inequity in their context, particularly after George Floyd. I saw many yoga teachers referring to the violence of uh, the police and the requests of Black community members that were part of their yoga studios or in the context that they were in. And I think similarly, this is the ask from caste depressed people. You know, I don't think there's an expectation that people have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and end all connection with Dharmic traditions. I think what we are asking for is for people to be self-reflective. Mm. You know, these tools um, are based in lineages that were fostered and passed on who were humans. And those humans had egos that were, you know, that had very particular filters and oftentimes were discriminatory or biased towards women and um, uh, caste oppressed bodies and communities. So yeah. to say that is simply to say, you know, even something as simple as, you know, uh, I am a practitioner of this lineage and, you know, I've received many benefits from it. And I also acknowledge that this lineage has created harm for caste depressed peoples. And um, and I will consider that harm as I work to um, commit to the freedom of all caste depressed peoples and make sure that my own practice does not replicate or further such harm. Mm -hmm. Something as simple as that could be tremendous because mm -hmm. then we're not hiding. Yeah. We're not part of the problem and we're not complicit to yeah. this violence because as you've mentioned in your previous work, Anjali, yoga is often weaponized as a tool of ethno-nationalism. So to say this is actually to just kind of see everything for what it is. You yeah. know, we are complex people and we can have complex points of view. And again, no one is asking for you to give up your yoga practice. We just want you to make adjustments. And we always make adjustments in yoga. How many yoga positions and asanas have we offered as teachers? You know, we have to, for some, you know, for some positions like the eagle position, the eagle position is not one really designed for women who have breasts, right? <laughs> you know, and, yeah. you know, and so we make adjustments in that capacity. We make adjustments for hip openers or for people that have to do yoga from within a chair. You know, mm. we are so nimble when it comes to the structural execution of asanas, but not when addressing the structural harm. I love that. Of this tradition. Yeah. And that's what I want to really open up possibility for the different people listening here is that it is okay 
for us to let our lineages evolve, um, especially as they integrate voices that have been traditionally shunned or harmed from uh, the traditions that you might practice to mm-hmm. really be interconnected and um, integrated with other humans, we are going to hear unsavory things mm-hmm. about things that are valuable to us. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to us thinking that that's an exception, we should just understand, okay, that's the norm. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. We yeah. can learn, we can heal, we can, we can you know, understand ruptures and then make repair. All of those things are really important to try to engage and build um, new new relationships around. Yeah, thank you. And you know, even within yoga history, there are a whole a whole lot of practitioners who decried Brahmanical patriarchy and started the Bhakti movement. And uh, so there is within the yoga lineages itself a lot of badassery that has happened. Uh, so you know. I appreciate what you are saying about being discerning as practitioners always and making it, making our unlearning an iterative process. And um, I like what you said about, you know, how caste operates like ghosts. And because we are unconscious of it, you say we inflict our wounds everywhere. And caste is invisible. It's invisible. And that's why it's so powerful because it is invisible. Uh, How would we go about unlearning something? that is so present and that's so inculcated in in almost all the domains of our lives, spiritual, political, religious, social, and now the technological world. How would we go about unlearning that? And, and I love what you have shared in terms of, you know, learning sheets at the end too. Um, could you add something else to that? Absolutely. So I think one thing to know is that unlearning any system of exclusion is something that actually happens in multiple domains. There's an intellectual component, there is a mind-body component to it, and there's a heart component to it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's really important to understand, you know, how we went about in, and as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, like I'm the executive director of an organization called Equality Labs. Um, and in our work around fighting for caste equity, what we saw was is that many people needed support to basically unlearn um, castist uh, attitudes. And so we built this workshop called Unlearning Cast uh, Supremacy, where we brought together both the intellectual history with the mind-body component, the somatic component. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been a really amazing thing to see thousands of people around the country take this workshop and be transformed. And part of it is because, and I really kind of credit the work of Black somatic abolitionists and indigenous um, uh, you know, thinkers around this who really um, created this whole body of work in somatics that's looking at the fact that you know, uh, in any system of exclusion, there is a way that our nervous systems have been trained, both as the privileged and as the oppressed. And Russell Menachem really put that very succinctly in his book where he talked about 
you know, if we could get rid of white supremacy through workshops and books and trainings, we would have already done it because we've had right. so much black brilliance, you know, doing right. and shedding light to that work. But what he saw in his own practice was that there was not, there was a disconnect between the nervous systems of the oppressed who were terrified legitimately of real acts of violence and the nervous systems of the privileged who were, who went to survival level um, uh, activation of their nervous system with, for just a small amount of harm. Mm -hmm. And that tells me, and that would unlock fragility, bigotry, you name it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a lot of work that we do in the workshops around caste harm and caste fragility um, that we, we, we couple that intellectual training with people really taking time to slow down in intercaste community to reset their nervous systems to learn mm -hmm. how to be in right alignment with each other. Mm -hmm. And it's a lifetime process, uh, you know, because, Absolutely. you know, even when you think you've unearthed something, you find that there's another terrain to, <laughs> to uncover because that's how trauma works, right? Yeah. It's like a slippery fish, you know, swimming underneath your conscious um, mind yeah. and you have to be slow enough to catch it and yeah. to um, really witness it so that it can feel like it becomes integrated with the rest of yourself, you know? Mm. So I, I feel like, you know, even in the, the process of this book, um, I would say when I started this book, I was definitely an expert in terms of caste, um, but I became an expert in my body after oh. writing this book. Oh, wow. And, and that's because it was terrifying to be embodied mm. around the violence that I faced. You know, I face, even today, I face tremendous violence in doing this work. And it's very easy to become disassociated, to come mm. out of your body. But to be slow enough to know that these are terrible things happening within you, um, to you, and your body is terrified and is working at a different pace than your intellect mm. in integrating those threats, um, I had to have tools mm. to deescalate my own nervous system. And so in uncovering those tools, using them, practicing in community with people, I really found opening in a way that was really quite magical. Mm. And, um, and that's part of why I'm really such a big believer of a somatic engagement as well as an intellectual and political one, because this is really the missing piece, I think, mm. around us constantly being in cycles of violence. Yeah, because cycles of violence are perpetuated through dysregulation and being in community. That's another thing that comes through in your book a lot, where you talk about uh, co-regulation and with, you know, having that community is like integral in disrupting uh, such an old prevalent system of oppression like caste. Um, I just want to go back to uh, some of the things that you mentioned um, earlier in our conversation, Tanbori, about Bhimrao Ambedkar, Dr. Bhimrao Ambedkar. You have shared some pro profiles of some amazing caste abolition ancestors. And uh, Dr. Ambedkar, you know, obviously stands out as a pioneer of caste abolition work, much beloved figure, uh, and also in sharp contrast to Gandhi. Um, you know, and you write a little bit about that conflict. I was wondering if you could shed some light. I always talk about Ambedkar 
whenever I whenever anybody brings about Gandhi, because not enough is talked about Ambedkar, um, and his one of his essays, you know, the uh, no peon, no water, is one of my one of the most moving accounts of his life. So, could you please shed some light on his work for our listeners and the conflict with Gandhi? So I think for uh, yogis who are listening, who are looking for people to put up on their wall, uh, to lift up as teachers or people that inform their practice, I've often seen in some yoga studios, people, they'll have their lineage teacher and then they'll have like a picture of Gandhi. And, um, and I, I think that what Anjali is speaking to here is that actually there's a lot of disinfo that actually went into um, setting up Gandhi as a figure to be venerated when it comes to civil and human rights, because in fact, that was PR that was constructed because his actual role in terms of the rights of the oppressed in India are actually far more murky. And in fact, he was uh, a very much a centrist when it came to caste abolition. Mm -hmm. He felt that while things were bad that were happening to untouchables, you know, quote unquote, in his term, he actually felt that there was a role and a purpose to caste. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to reform the caste system, not remove right. it. Right. And that was untenable to people that were caste oppressed. They were like, why, you know, just because you have a reformed slavery system does not mean that we are not slaves. Get out of here, right. you know? <laughs> so his right. direct opposition figure was this incredible uh, caste oppressed leader named Dr. Ambedkar, who was our Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and so many things like rolled into one. And, you know, he was a lawyer. He was an, an economist. He was, you know, a spiritual philosopher. And um, and he was the architect of the Indian Constitution. Constitution. So his battles were with Gandhi were about keeping him accountable to the mm. facade that he was uh, perpetuating abroad. So, for example, one of the things that Gandhi would do is that he would write in his native Gujarati extremely casteist things and then write the opposite for English texts. I know, Anjali, it was pretty wild, you know. What? Yes, yes. So I think for people who are looking for a figure to lift up in your yoga studios, lift up Dr. Ambedkar, because he actually, you know, unlike the, the mythology around Gandhi, he actually led desegregation marches mm -hmm. for caste. And, you know, he tried to desegregate roads and temples and water tanks um, and spent many, many, many years of his life fighting for the liberation of all people. He was also, Dr. Becker was also a strident feminist mm -hmm. and fought for the rights of all women, you know, trying to construct um, alternative legal theories to the existing codes that existed within Hindu scriptures. And, you know, his work eventually led to the many feminist laws that we now have because of his, you know, trailblazing um, fight. So, you know, and in the end, you know, he he ultimately led one of the largest conversions to Buddhism, Buddhism. Uh, because he said, even though I was born a Hindu, I do not want to die one. And he you know, his choice is a model of how you build consent after being a survivor of religious abuse. Mm. So to honor Dr. Ambedkar is actually a really profound way to bring 
an acknowledgement of past harm to your yoga studios mm-hmm. and um, your sanghas, you know, and it doesn't have to be a big thing, just even a small photograph and a little message saying that this studio supports caste equity, adding caste to your non-discrimination policies and having a little acknowledgement, you know, in your classes, those things are really beautiful ways to incorporate um, you know, the experiences of caste oppressed people who are fighting for their rights and their dignity right now. And, and it's a way that our yoga practice can be connected to the global lineages that it is formed from. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, I'm always moved by Dr. Ambedkar's words and work and one more, another one person, and that this is my personal uh, hero, if you will, is Savitri Bai Pule, the a feminist icon. And can you please give us a thumbnail version of her too, uh, of you know her contribution to em- emancipation of women's rights? And I think wh- what I'm tr- I think I'm trying to like also share is how Dalit rights is very closely related to so many other movements, uh, both in India and and globally. So one more. I just like to have these names out into the ether so that people learn more and dig into this these stories more. It goes a long way. Well, and that's actually one of the reasons why in my book, I have a whole section yeah. related to anti-caste ancestors and a glossary. Because yeah. a lot of times people are very afraid to enter the discourse around caste because they feel like they'll say the wrong thing yeah. or offend somebody. But actually, Anjali is right. The more that you engage with these leaders, the more you will be inspired to, yeah. to stand by and flank these people. And, you know, so one of the folks that she just mentioned was um, Jyoti Bai and Saviti Bai Pule. Um, and they're a couple and um, who basically stood for caste, you know, the rights of the caste oppressed and significantly to educate women. And Saviti Bai Pule ran one of the first um, schools to educate women in the subcontinent. And she struggled deeply in that journey. You know, when she would walk to school, she had to carry a second set of clothes because the upper caste men would throw shit and dung and urine and, and spit on her, um, all for the crime of teaching girls. Mm-hmm. And, and she persisted and she opened many educational institutions Yes. And also was a writer and poet in her own context and ultimately died serving um, members of our community during the first pandemic in the early 1900s. So she lived and she died in service of our people and the the most vulnerable, Um, you know, but what I love about her was her just commitment, fearless, relentless commitment to the liberation of all peoples. And the same thing with her husband, Jyoti Bai Pule. He wrote some of the most beautiful texts related to anti-caste thinking, including this one book called Gulamgiri, uh, which was essentially a book about caste abolition. And it's why I use the term abolition around caste was because of his beautiful writing. And he, he writes about how inspired he was about the ab- abolition of slavery and was thinking about when could this come for caste oppressed people, you know? Mm. So beautiful thinkers, beautiful writers. And there's so many uh, people who are in the constellation of caste oppressed writers or thinkers that it's just an incredible um, community to be connected with. So one more question, uh, Tanmori, is how do you think 
caste has been operating in yoga spaces in in so many ways it has so do you have any um examples that you want to share sure so i think there is this really very intense dynamic particularly i think in uh teachers that are not south asian about people being concerned uh around appropriation and yoga mm-hmm. And so what this means is, is that they not only become hyper aware about appropriation and where they might be misstepping, they then lean into very conservative models of South Asian culture as the way to do things. When in fact, they're actually lifting up very bigoted frameworks and also frameworks that make no sense um, in terms of their application here. And um, so they actually cause double harm as a result of wanting to not be appropriation, you know, be people who are appropriating. And that's why I always say that in order to decolonize yoga, you have to first de-Brahmanize it Mm. because it's actually many aspects of caste that you come across. And, you know, one very simple thing is, a lot of yoga studios I've been to, they may start you off with like a mantra, like, you know, uh, you know, whether it's the, you know, the removal of obstacles mantra or, you know, there's all different kinds of do. Right. And that was a place of deep conflict for me as a Dalit because of the way that Sanskrit was weaponized um, by the Brahmin class to and that in many early Hindu scriptures, we were not allowed to speak it. We weren't even allowed to listen to it. Otherwise, we'd have our tongues cut off and lead poured in our ears. So it was very troubling to be in a class and have a teacher say to me, you can't really get the benefits of this practice if you don't do the mantra. And um, and you have to do it. And if I didn't, then I was going to be asked to leave the class. What? Uh, yeah, this is like in the early 90s. So it was like really kind of wild, uh, you know, dogmatism going on there and Mm -hmm. it was very it was so hard for me because I was thinking about the fact that my ancestors couldn't say these mantras and yet um how could I use it for my own freedom when it was something that enslaved them oh gosh yeah so you know to me I feel like it I think there's a lot of experimentation that could be done about either leaving those mantras out, especially yeah. because yoga classes in the United States are secular. Um, and so either leaving them out or having a replacement or having something that's verbal, because mm-hmm. the whole point of why we're doing mantra is to integrate, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and I remember people saying these like absurd things like Sanskrit is such a deeply holy language. No other language has the level of spiritual vibration that it has and it's these specific letters in Sanskrit that free your body and integrate your chakras and in actuality you know it just so happens that those you know syllables activate our vagus nerve you know and so we can achieve them without those syllables just by knowing that logic and that way that our you know sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system works together right right so all of that kind of weird esoteric you know woo woo mm. around this people lean into because they think that they're surrendering to the lineage or the power mm. of that when in fact these are things that have filters of the ego on them and we mm-hmm. have to still bring our critical thinking to it you know 100%. and percent so and there's even things about i've always been struck about how gendered 
and mm-hmm. misogynist. Um, some of the divisions of the body and energy are, mm-hmm. as you know, written in certain yoga texts are, where you know the idea of our senses being Shakti is feminine, and the discipline is Shiva or male. Mm-hmm. And I remember this one teacher giving this example of being in Varnasi, and he saw this one Baba, you know, essentially hitting himself with the whip to control his senses, and he would say, "You whore Shakti, you whore Shakti." And then um, he would talk about the incredible discipline of Mm. yoga and, you know, Shiva being yogic discipline to be able to bring the energy up into the Kundalini. And Mm. you can actually do all of those things without having such punitive (laughs) gendered language, right? Absolutely. And I think the gender bias and the Brahminical bias came in because of Brahminical patriarchy and the, you know, the coding of all these uh, issues after Manusmriti uh, came into, uh, came into vogue during the times. And then it was propagated through centuries. So 100%, there is absolutely no need for anyone to chant if there is a, if there is a resistance for whatever reason. And if you don't feel good about it, that's always, it should always be an option. Everything should always be an option. uh, I think in a yoga class, you know, you can come to a yoga class and take a nap. And if that's what you really want to do, that's what you really want to do. That's how it should be. Um, And I think, you know, the Shiva Shakti uh, dichotomy of or binary thinking of gender is itself uh, an example of the bias that exists. Uh, and who wrote these things? Who taught these things? They were men. They were cis men. There were cis Brahmin men uh, who taught these things centuries ago. And then everybody thinks that that is the only truth. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. And uh, and whoever said that in your LA studio is absolutely wrong. You know, uh, you sh- nobody should should have to say or do anything. Consent is the most important thing. It is. And, you know, what we're coming to yoga practice and what we're hoping to get from the mat is integration. Yeah. You know, we don't need to have the human filter that shapes it in the context of one gender being stronger than the other. Yeah. Or the senses being pure, impure, you know, using gendered language. All of that are ways that we fail the ultimate endless possibility that comes from integration you know and I think I had to again I had to embody myself to recognize I had a right to these practices and as a Dalit woman think about how revolutionary it is to have a Dalit woman talk about somatic practice in our tradition when we are the ones who are experimented on we are the ones that are raped we are not the ones that create the possibility for divinity that's exactly what I want us to be able to do because everything changes when we start to center consent and center the oppressed. 100%. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Well, thank you so much. And I think you are our modern day, uh, you know, thinker and leader. And I'm just so... I'm still like, I can't believe I'm having this conversation with you because I have looked at your work with such admiration and respect. Um, So moving, I think we're coming to the end of our time together. How I just want to like close this with a couple questions. How can we create a space? And you have shared this uh, throughout, but are there any pointers for us to create a space that invites and nurtures folks from all backgrounds and specifically caste oppressed backgrounds in our yoga spaces? Anything else we can do, which we haven't discussed yet? 
No, I think the checklist is pretty simple. Okay. Add as a protected category to your yes. non-discrimination and employment policies to consider wherever you have the altar or wall dedicated to your lineages, acknowledge Dr. Embedkar. You know, I think that would be such a beautiful offering. And then three, um, you know, work to see if there's a script of um, cast, you know, an acknowledgement of cast harm that you might be able to incorporate for all of the teachers that teach at your studio so that just like you do land acknowledgements and acknowledge anti-Black racism, we can acknowledge um, the, you know, both the benefits that this lineage has provided for you and your students, but also that it came um, at a cost mm -hmm. and consequence to cast oppressed people and that you are committed to supporting um, uh, our attempts to, you know, achieve repair and also justice um, in the present time. You know, so those things I think are to do. And then also pick up the book. <laughs> yes, pick up this book. This is a classic, The Trauma of Caste, a Dalit feminist meditation on survivorship, healing and abolition. And is there anything else we can do to support your work? Well, I, you know, the thing with this book is that it's really designed to be read in community. So if you really mm -hmm. love this book, I encourage you to host a book, uh, a reading group with your your closest family member or chosen family or friends, you know, buy the book for a young person that you can read it with, because there's so much healing in it, not just for South Asian people, but for anyone interested in how we heal from polarization and bigotry. And, mm -hmm. you know, there will be calls to action because there are people who are making threats because this book was written. And this is the time to stand with cast oppressed, you know, people like myself, because it is a tremendous thing to break the silence and yet I wouldn't have it any other way because this is how we achieve integration and love and empathetic witness with each other so I appreciate you Anjali for creating space around this conversation and I just know that we're going to grow loving kindness with this conversation and I encourage everyone to join our beloved community thank you so much and a hundred percent a reading group will be created and I will facilitate this book because I'm in love with the book and the work and the words. So anything that I can do to uplift your work, then Maria, I'm here. And uh, I just call on all the listeners to send, you know, loving kindness, respect, uh, a shield of protection uh, around you as you grow and speak your truth to power. Again, so much appreciation for you. Thank you all for listening. Jay Beam and Jay Savitri, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here for this conversation. Please support our work at Accessible Yoga Association by becoming an ambassador or checking out our studio at accessibleyoga.org. Check out Soma Yoga Institute, a top-rated Yoga Alliance training school that offers therapeutic-focused 200 and 300-hour yoga teacher trainings and continuing education courses online and in-person in destination locations worldwide. 
Their programs, heralded by many as truly transformational, are for teachers, those that wish to teach, and also for anyone that wants to learn how to practice yoga in a self-honoring, safe, and sustainable way so that your practice becomes a lifelong companion that brings you vibrant health in body, brain, heart, and mind. Learn a safe, accessible, and conscious approach that includes anatomy-informed alignment, mindful vinyasa and variations to meet the needs of all bodies, instructed by world-class yoga therapists, rooted in tradition, with benefits backed by science. Strive less, be more, find your unique self at www.somayogainstitute.com.